Hello and welcome to Coronavirus, the whole story, the award-winning podcast by and for the UCL community. I'm Vivian Parry. I'm a writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna and the one that's happily been charged with bringing you the latest news and insights on coronavirus through interviews with UCL's treasure trove of researchers and staff. Today, we're returning to a topic from a few months ago, one which now has an even bigger spotlight on it, vaccines. Some of you might remember episode seven, How Close Are We to Finding a Cure, which was a special episode we made for the Cheltenham Festival. If not, you can catch up on our website. In this episode, I'm going to find out what progress has been made in the development of a vaccine and have a look at some of the challenges that there might be in rolling it out. I'm joined, remotely of course, by three key researchers bringing their expertise of biochemical engineering, bioethics and pharmaceutics to the critical question of vaccines. My first guest is Professor Ellie keshevis moore from the Department of Biochemical Engineering. Ellie is a principal researcher at VaxHub, an EPSRC-funded research hub focused on the manufacturing and supply of essential vaccines and part of the team developing a COVID-19 vaccine. I'm also joined by bioethicist Professor Sarah Edwards from the Department of Science and Technology Studies. Sarah studies population health and during lockdown has been investigating preparedness for COVID-19 using knowledge gained in previous pandemics. And last but not least, Dr. Sudax Murdan, a reader in pharmaceutics in the UCL School of Pharmacy. Sudax's research focus is on the delivery of vaccines, for instance, comparing injections to other forms of drug delivery, as well as pharmacy education and the reception of vaccines. Let me start this off with Ellie. To kick us off, could you give us an update on where we are now with the COVID-19 vaccine? What stage are we in now? And how close are we to having a vaccine? This is interesting because globally, um, apart from what is happening within the UK, there are overall 20 uh, vaccines which are in clinical trials worldwide. And that's, this is part of over 100, I think about 100 to 150 candidates which have been actually uh, looked into. Now, the one that obviously is very much in the news is the one uh, that OPPO uh, the co-director of the Vax Hub, uh, uh, Sarah Gilbert, has been uh, working on, which has shown the most promise in terms of timing, simply because they were a bit ahead of the game. They, they started by having the base which was needed in order to develop the, the, the uh, vaccine, simply because they had already had a vaccine developed against MERS, which is the Middle Eastern uh, respiratory syndrome and using that as a, as a backbone so it could be built on it. Uh, they have managed to be working towards actually uh, getting uh, healthy volunteers uh, and I'm, I should say that UCH, University College Hospital, has been very effective in actually helping uh, with uh, providing the uh, volunteers to test these and it shows that in fact it does um, provide in uh, invoke immunity both in terms of antibody and t-cell generation in uh, the healthy volunteers and of course the next phase is now uh, taking place phase two uh, is to ensure that the larger population are looked at and this is going to be uh, given to people where the actual uh, there's, there's a high 
um, advent of uh, these, the disease being in the, in the public, because obviously you have to actually demonstrate that the vaccine is working. And uh, these are taking place in uh, South America and uh, United States, as well as South Africa, I believe. And this is ongoing. And the reason it's taking place in those countries is because we, uh, contrarily, we haven't actually got enough infection here. Indeed, indeed, yes. And and in terms of what UCL is doing to help, is that the actual manufacturing part? There's one part, obviously, is the the fronted creation of the sort of vector which is going to be used as a, as a for for providing the vaccine. But another part of it is effectively manufacturing this and the manufacturing is quite a complex um, process and there are bottlenecks that currently are, are being resolved uh, our uh, vax hub at ucl is helping the oxford group to overcome uh, using engineering techniques that we have developed at ucl to overcome these bottlenecks so that there's a platform uh, available which would make it uh, suitable for uh, scale up which is going to be taking place, as you know, it has been taken over by large pharmaceuticals to make, uh, I think it's around 2 billion uh, doses. In fairness, we can never say something works until it works, but the signs are very, very promising. And I really have high hopes for that. Yeah, we should say, that, uh, sort of, just to, to make everybody aware that 90% of vaccines actually fail. So it's, it, it's, it's, I'm, I'm so glad that you're very hopeful, but we'll come back to the timing of when we all get it. But I just want to go to Sudax because you are also developing a vaccine in your group, but with a different sort of administration. Tell us about your one. Yes, so my um, research, actually we are, we are in UCL, we are putting together a proposal and we hope the government funds it. One of the routes is parenteral by injection, and the second route is by sublingual. So we would put the vaccine... Sublingual under, meaning beneath your tongue? Under the tongue, yes. And there are many advantages of that. So one advantage is the efficacy. When we give vaccines under the tongue, we expecting to get immune responses, antibodies, in the mouth and in the nose. And it might possibly also be in the eye tear fluids. And the good thing about that would be we would get antibodies where the virus enters the body. So the antibodies would prevent, would bind to the virus and prevent the virus from entering the body. So can you, Sudax, can you use that for all, that method of administration for all the different kinds of vaccines that are being developed at the moment? Or is it only some of them? Um, I think. Well, we have not everything has not been tested by that route, but many have been tested. So, for example, proteins inact, uh, would be possible. Inactivated virus, for example, flu is now given by the nasal route. So I'm assuming for the sublingual route, it might also work as the nose and the under the tongue, they're quite close and they are, the immune system is uh, related. So I'm expecting that quite a few of the different vaccines being tested could be test could be administered under the tongue. Yes. So, uh, Ellie, of course, developing a vaccine is one thing. Getting it out the door of the factory is another thing altogether. And, and just so people know, we've got a, a basket of vaccines, if you like, in development. 
that not all the same type, some are RNA vaccines, some are DNA vaccines, some are a weakened uh, uh, vaccines, some are live strains, all the different sorts. So, and they all have slightly different manufacturing. And of course, you don't know which one is going to win the race until very late in the day. What kind of problems does that present for an engineer like you? <laughs> let's let's put it, for 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 an engineer is a challenge most welcome because that keeps us occupied uh, and uh, give us a job to do. So uh, from an engineer's perspective, this is a very nice challenge because it's, you're looking at different platforms. But having said that, I think it's a healthy thing. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned, which I maybe uh, I, I should uh, sort of uh, question a bit, is the question of which one is going to win the race. And at the end of the day, I think that it is important to have all these varieties to be uh, looked into. And whilst one may be ahead of others, there are going to be other possibilities as well. For, there, are, there are other vaccines on the market, nothing to do with uh, COVID, that are produced with different types of platforms, possibly for the different type of uh, you know, um, the, the diseases. And uh, it's good to have that variety and have people actually produce them in different ways because there might be a need to actually have more than just one source of, of vaccine produced by one single platform. So I welcome that as an engineer. And I think that there are enough people with enough sort of ability to be able to uh, effectively optimize those platforms and use them to actually get to the to the to the point of of exit where we're going to have a vaccine. Of course, one of the things that everybody is concerned about uh, at the end of the day is affordability, efficacy, efficacy and affordability. Uh, I, I I take it that oh they're all going to be safe and pass through regulatory uh, you know hurdles. But when it comes to the efficacy. Clearly, if something is more efficacious, it, it sort of wins the heart of everyone. And if it's more affordable, clearly all the health organizations who've got to pay for it, the governments who have to pay for it, they would probably prefer it. But we are not at that point. Everybody's trying to do their best to come up with whatever they can because there is no solution yet. So that's why I think that it's important to have this sort of multifaceted effort, in other words. So the very multifaceted effort, but actually the, the final bit of the puzzle, what's called the fill and finish, just give us yes. a hint of the kind of problems that we're facing there. Well, I mean, one of the things that you were, uh, were discussing was that the supply, first of all, there's enough capacity for fill and finish because it's not just the manufacturing part. That's why a lot of these manufacturing companies uh, are in negotiations or have signed deals with the fill and finish uh, um, ancillary uh, companies to be able to uh, push the material which is produced through quickly. Also, there, there are, um, whether there's going to be enough supply of the material for the fill and finish, uh, you know, sometimes you have things that we require uh, adjuvant to be added. Is there going to be access to enough adjuvant by all the companies who are actually working on on these vaccines? Is there going to be capacity or is there going to be competition for uh, a fill and finish provider or, or not? So uh, whether we need to actually extend that part of the, uh, the whole supply chain. And also, I think earlier on before the conversation started, the issue was the supply chain is something that should not be overlooked because it's not just the actual molecule, it's not just the manufacturing, it's how to get 
the product to the market, but at the same time, how to make sure that there's enough supply of the uh, initial materials to make all of those stages possible. So all the world is depending on engineers, not just vaccine developers. Uh, Sudats, let me come back to, to you because um, let's talk a bit about safety because we're doing these vaccines at extraordinary speed. And indeed in the US, it's called the Warp Speed Project and it speeds part of the name. And people are concerned that safety corners are being cut because this is so urgent. What are your thoughts on that? So the FDA, MHRA, EMA, the regulatory bodies, it's their responsibility before they before it can be licensed. So safety is paramount. Safety will be the number one concern uh, before licensing. So I would have, even though it's speeded up, the numbers of people and adverse effects found, it will be judged. Safety will be judged. So I wouldn't worry um, because it's uh, one of the main criteria before the vaccine comes on the market. And that segues perfectly to our bioethicist, Sarah. What are the ethical considerations when creating a vaccine in a public health emergency? Yes, well, vaccine development um, can be very challenging, you know, at the best of times. But certainly in a public health emergency, all the, the moral aspects um, of such a process are clearly accentuated. And that's as a general point, but it also may um, indeed raise peculiar questions um, relating specifically to the urgency of trying to get a new vaccine um, you know, under development and licensed for, for widespread use. I mean, certainly the, um, the usual precautionary approach that um, regulators take to um, licensing new medicines generally and um, vaccinations are part of that process are based on clear clinical um, evidence of clinical trials, which seek to evaluate um, the risks and expected benefits in largely controlled conditions based on the consent of participants before the evidence is appraised and judged to be um, sufficient to produce a sort of a, a rollout um, programme and to allow more people from the population to gain access to it and indeed to embark on the induced herd immunity which um, a vaccination programme is, is designed to fulfil. Nobody would ever say that vaccines are completely without harm because they do cause uh, harm, although in very rare instances, and it's a risk benefit that we all have to uh, consider. But one of the issues when we're doing these things at breakneck speed is that you don't see the very rare side effects until a very large number, possibly millions of people have had their uh, vaccines. I'm thinking particularly of during the last uh, flu pandemic, there was a vaccine called Pandemrix, which caused narcolepsy um, in uh, a few children. I mean, this is, you know, millions and millions. It was a very, very rare side effect. But that kind of thing is going to come up. How do we deal with that and maintain public confidence at the same time? So one of the substantive issues that scientists and um, regulators alike are grappling with at the moment 
is indeed how we promote um, the clinical trials that are needed to understand in a scientifically robust way whether a particular vaccine can cause particular outcomes that are desirable and indeed um, prevent the adverse effects that you're raising. At the same time as generating the real world data from large populations from which we might be able to tell how the vaccine would be implemented and how we might be able to spot um, the more rare side effects that would um, be required during the sort of longer term surveillance that would be required um, no matter when the vaccine is licensed for wider use. Is there anything about the current pandemic that's changed the way we consider vaccine development in a pandemic from an ethical point of view? Um, Yes, yes, I I think there are. Off the top of my head, I mean, in, in two main ways. One is quite what the limits are to having a compressed process of development. So we we heard of one vaccine in the States skipping what we would usually regard as a very important necessary step to ensure safety, and um, that is preclinical animal studies. They were run in parallel with the first human trials, which were designed to to test um, safety and what doses might be tolerated by a biological system. That's only one, though, example in in the whole raft of clinical trials that that we're seeing. I think um, you quoted 20 clinical trials with about 100 candidates. So this compression of the process certainly isn't being universally applied. And in some cases, it's quite the reverse, that the regulations being imposed to require greater evidence of safety are being tightened rather than relaxed. And indeed, some of these vaccines that are being tried at the moment, the RNA vaccines, they are new vaccines. I mean, they're, you know, they're first in class. They're not vaccines that we've had much experience of in the past. Yes, yes. And we've had to learn salutary lessons from testing first in class compounds in, in humans and perhaps uh, mistakenly relying on evidence from non-human primates and assuming that they would act as a good human model of the disease. So whichever way you look at it, we're going to have to be careful and take as as sensible as steps as we can to mitigate that risk, as well as monitoring very carefully the the effects that those vaccines are having on the human body. And how has the anti-vax movement and these extraordinary conspiracy theories. I mean, I spoke to someone the other day who said that they uh, thought that they were being injected with, they would be injected with something which would be picked up by 5G. And it all had sort of Bill Gates in it. And somehow he was, it was world dominance. It was just so outlandish. But it, but these conspiracy theories just breed on the internet. And they've produced an extraordinary and really alarming amount of vaccine denial. Yes, I, I, I think we have to be um, a little bit careful here. I mean, there, there are um, some theories which are clearly, you know, outlandish and denial of true facts has to be countered in various ways. Some of the social media platforms are trying to, um, to filter out some of the more extreme anti-vax views. That said, There are less outlandish rumours which do also build up on social media. 
And sometimes they can illustrate one of two things. They, they, they can illustrate a concern or even a glimmer of truth. Indeed, we should never forget that. Yes, and, and that's where community engagement is, is really so very, very important. I don't think the old days of developing a new drug and then assuming we'll be able to implement it on an unsuspecting population are right for this pandemic, if ever they were. But certainly, I think whatever, whatever the rumours, um, if you like, which seems to be quite a pejorative way of, of describing it, take us, we, we should be engaging with that where we can. And certainly where there's a glimmer of truth. And in, in some cases, for example, we are hearing that there are very local protests um, against the vaccine trials in South Africa. Now, we can quite understand why there may be suspicion about um, vaccine trials, particularly in South Africa. We, we've got in living memory some historic cases that would have been better handled in other ways and perhaps um, vaccines that ended up being trialled on the population that could have been stopped much earlier, leading to wasted resources, to name but, but a few sort of difficulties. Sudak, because I know that you've been working on some community engagement, haven't yeah. you? Yes. So what we did is um, me, my friend from Public Health England, and a second year pharmacy student, we trained 60 pharmacy undergraduates to become vaccination champions. So this is uh, this happened this month. Um, we did a, so the students were invited to participate by Eventbrite. They had to fill in a pre-workshop questionnaire about their beliefs in vaccination, and then we had a two-hour training online. And after that, they filled in a questionnaire about uh, whether their attitudes and beliefs have changed, and then they have to conduct an action. An action. And 60 students conducted a variety of actions, like talking to a friend who was hesitant, even talking to a friend who put something on their website, on their Facebook, who said, oh, I don't, who said to their followers, I don't think we should take the vaccine. I just don't feel we should. So she challenged a person, a hesitant person. And other students have created posters or they've talked to their family and a lot of family members are hesitant. So this is what Sarah was saying about community engagement. Uh, students, we train them and then they can engage with their own communities, their families, their friends. And in this way, we can, um, we can increase the pro-vax output as well. So I think we need to do much more of this. So all in a way, what we need to do, train more undergraduates to do this and even school children because they can talk and they can engage social media much more than people of our generation. They don't have uh, the same hesitancy to engage with social media and to engage with their friends. And we need, we need to lay the ground, really, for the vaccines coming. We need to lay the ground for people to accept it when it comes and to challenge misconceptions. But in a way, before we can train, we need to educate our trainers we need to educate our champions so that they can communicate with their family and friends about the misconceptions of vaccine. Thank you. You're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. If there's a question about coronavirus you'd like our researchers to answer, 
email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk or tweet at UCL. We'd also really appreciate it if you could complete our survey, which can be found on the UCL Minds website if you haven't had a chance to yet. So, so far we've been discussing how to get a vaccine out there safely, assuming that it's going to work. Let me just turn that on its head now and ask what we're risking here. What if it doesn't stop people being infected? In other words, it might stop people dying, but it doesn't stop people being infected. Is that enough? If there are unanticipated side effects, what effect will that have on public confidence? And what level of side effects are acceptable? Ellie, I'm going to start with you on that, just briefly. Well, I, th I think that, as we heard, public sets its own standards. In other words, what becomes important is uh, the education of the public. You might think that, for instance, engineers would not be involved with learning anything about ethics, but uh, the ethical issues are of, of prime importance to illustrate what an engineer needs to do in order to actually produce their products, because we don't want an engineer to engage with something that he or she would consider unethical. So I think public education, especially at the younger stage onwards, is, is fundamental in being able to actually do this. Uh, whether things work or not, uh, as, as you heard, is something that is a, is a risk-benefit situation. And as long as all possible solutions and questions have been considered, then hopefully that would give us a positive outcome at the end. And indeed, I guess that people see COVID as a really dread disease, particularly older people, and they're very keen to have uh, a vaccine. Uh, what about you, Sarah? What are your thoughts on this? Yes, well, um, certainly being able to reduce the severity of the disease in those who are most vulnerable, if not prevent infection, seems to be um, a very laudable objective. It would mean that the vaccine could be at least as good as a treatment. However, when we're looking at the risks and how those the possible burdens of the vaccine are distributed across the population, in order to achieve anything like a sort of you know the the, the herd immunity that um, that we all sort of hear about and expect is the underlying presumption behind you know such a, a result, the um, the young and healthy would be required to undergo an excessive burden for, for themselves, perhaps little benefit. So if we're mainly trying to protect those who are older, perhaps with underlying health conditions, the very people who are currently regarded as um, prognostically vulnerable and should be protected, we don't want them to be protecting them at the expense of the rest of the population. And of course, the older people will probably require, uh, certainly require a couple of uh, doses because their immune response to vaccines is less. And they might require more adjuvanted vaccines. So an adjuvant is something that you add to a vaccine to make it have a stronger immune response. So there are all sorts of tricky things to consider here. And uh, I was wondering, um, Sudax, what you thought about warning people that this is that this might well be a very 
what's called a reactogenic vaccine. In other words, a vaccine a bit like yellow fever, which is pretty horrible vaccine. It's very protective, but you feel pretty rotten for a day or so after you've been given it. And there's lots of evidence from the trial so far that this one is going to be similar. How much do you think we ought to warn people about that in advance? So this this is very interesting. Firstly, I recently had yellow fever vaccine because I was supposed to travel to Kenya, but I didn't because of COVID. Anyway, my I didn't have any reaction and I was really scared and expecting a reaction because I'd read up about it and I knew a lot about it, but I didn't have any reaction. But coming back to your question, uh, warning people is very important, um, I think, because it also will stop the rumors. Uh, people will go into something expecting something and they're, then they are less surprised and shocked and upset and think, oh, you didn't tell me before. So I think warning is good. The other thing I read recently was vaccines, vaccination does have side effects. Let's say even if it's one in a million, but because in a pandemic we'll be, let's say we vaccinate the whole of the UK, 65 million people, we will, and if it's the risk is one in a million, we will have 65 cases of side effects, let's say. And because it will happen in a very short time, there will be a lot of attention on these 65 cases, a lot of public attention and media attention. But all the other 65 million who did not get any side effects or who did not get the disease and it, the death was lowered will not get the attention. So the dialogue has to be about both. We need to have this dialogue about the risk and the benefit. And if we don't, if you don't get the vaccination, what could you, what will happen? What are the risks of not getting the vaccine as well as the risk of getting the vaccine? Sarah, that's a very strong argument, isn't it, for really telling people in advance that actually, you know, there will be side of very serious side effects for a few people, but but the benefits outweigh the, uh, the risks. Yeah, and most side effects are mild for vaccines. There are a lot of people have fever or pain at the site of injection or tenderness, or but they resolve within a day or two. So most vaccine side effects are mild. So this also goes in that conversation that you will expect, if you're expecting some tenderness and, it's, um, and you know that it will go away in a day or two, then you are less likely to worry about it when, when you get it. Sarah, what do you think about warning people in advance like that? Certainly, we should be as open and transparent about the evidence as is currently known while we're trying to prepare the population. I mean, it's worth knowing, you know, how people process information about statistics and how salient different stories are for people when they're judging the risks of different interventions. But the need to be able to be open and transparent probably overrides what may be the temptation to manipulate information in order to try and persuade more people to, um, to take up the vaccine. We should be working with people's concerns, not simply trying to think that we're somehow educating people who are disbelievers. Then there may be very understandable and justifiable reasons why people have concerns. So the more we can engage with those, um, the better. And it's important to recognise, I guess, that for some people, 
being anti-vaccine is a belief system and there's no amount of education is going to persuade them differently. And maybe we need to think about those people in a different way because they're not going to uh, be uh, open to uh, persuasion. I always finish these programmes by trying to get people to <laughs> accept my magic wand. And uh, so I want to do that to all three of you. And from the perspective of an engineer, a bioethicist and a pharmacologist, if you had your magic wand, what is it that you'd wave your wand for in order to get us a successful vaccine? Uh, let's start with you, Ellie. <laughs> magic wand. Um, engineers don't believe in magic oh, wands. Oh, now, now. Uh, you... <laughs> engineers are uh, magic wands in and of themselves, I think. <laughs> uh, um, I, I would, um, what the discussion we had was, in fact, very pertinent. They say this fact that the buy-in is important. I, if I had a magic wand, I would want to be able to tell people that not to stress, uh, follow the rules, but at the same time be open-minded about vaccines. And my, when I use the term educating people, it wasn't in the sense of sitting people down and telling them. Telling people is not the way, but engaging them in actually making them understand what what it is that you're trying to say, that's the way to actually persuade people. So my thing would be not just the production of the vaccine, but also uh, people being prepared to accept it. How about you, uh, Sarah? Yes, well, thinking in terms of um, utopian ethics, if not magic wands, We'd certainly be looking at having fairer, far more participative or, or indeed democratic procedures for bringing populations, affected populations, into the discussions about vaccines and indeed designing the vaccines with those people in mind, with their concerns and their values. Sudax. Okay, so I'm a pharmacist and my magic wand, I would like the government to fund different routes of giving vaccination, not just by injection. So, for example, sublingual that that I'm trying to do and by the nose, because hopefully by funding different streams, at least a few will get will become successful and get to the market. Some of these will have less side effects. Some of these different routes will be cheaper because you don't need in syringe and needles and maybe they will fit different populations. So my uh, utopian is a several successful vaccines and then we will have enough for the seven billion of us and different vaccines which suit different populations. By populations I mean older people or younger people or people who are scared of needles and that sort of thing. Well if I can wave my very own magic wand what I would say is that we need to recognize that we're none of us are safe until all of us are safe. This vaccination is a global problem. We need to address it in a global way. And on that note, uh, can I say thank you to all of you? It's been an absolutely fascinating uh, discussion. 
You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the stupendous Keris Bradley. Our guests today were Professor Ellie Kesherez-Moore and Sarah Edwards and Dr. Sudax Murdan. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. And whilst you're there, why not fill out our survey? This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon. Bye for now.